This podcast is supported by an unrestricted educational grant provided by Medtronic. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today we will be speaking with Dr. Ashish Khanna about his top-rated abstract, Derivation and Validation of a Novel Opioid-Induced Respiratory Depression Risk Prediction Tool. Nearly half of all in-hospital cardiorespiratory arrests occur on general care floors, and opiate-induced respiratory depression, OIRD, is one potential cause of these events. Dr. Khanna investigated incidents of OIRD as part of the Prodigy trial. He spoke at the 48th Critical Care Congress on this topic, and I am thrilled that he's joining us today to discuss this topic more in depth. Dr. Khanna is an intensivist who serves as Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and is Associate Chief for Research at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Khanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I think it would be good for us to establish some background on this. Um, If you could um, tell us how you came to want to do a study about this particular topic and some of the epidemiology involved, that would be really great. Sure. So the general perception is that our uh, floors or nursing units or general care units or general wards, whatever we might call them, are our safe haven uh, are, are a safe haven for our patients you know we send our patients there from the ICU from the PACU our medical patients recover there and the hope is that they're going to make a recovery and ultimately go home the issue though is that um, what we have seen with recent literature is um, there is an increasing incidence of sudden acute cardiorespiratory events on the general care floor Um, And when these incidents actually happen, uh, the mortality associated with it is pretty significant. For example, a recent registry um, called the Get With the Guidelines Registry looked at all index events across the United States over the last decade or so and found that these index events are really, really common, common to the tune of many thousands of events across the hospitals that were participating in the registry. When these events happen, these patients had a mortality tune of almost 40%. So nearly half of these patients will die. And this outcome is much worse than patients who have a sudden cardiorespiratory event in a monitored scenario like the ICU or the PACU. So I felt that um, we were sending our patients to the general care floor. It was our responsibility to make sure that they were safe, but clearly there was a miss somewhere. Now, the other side of the coin is how we monitor our patients on the general care floor. Our our traditional monitoring systems are based on snapshots in time. You know, uh, a nurse or nursing assistant will come in and, you know, check a patient's vital signs and, you know, uh, uh, do a quick neurological assessment. And then there will be about three or four hours, and there will be this gap in time where there will be, you know, essentially the patient will be there by himself or herself in his room with no real-time monitoring going on. And it is these gaps in times where these cardiorespiratory events tend to happen. So put together, cardiorespiratory events are really common on general care floor. Current monitoring standards might not be meeting criteria where they pick up these cardiorespiratory events. And finally, it is almost impossible to predict 
which patients are going to have these cardiorespiratory events. We've um, done work before where we looked at various predictors and we've tried to see if there is an easily validated tool that we can be used to predict the happening of these events, and unfortunately, we had found nothing so far. So the Prodigy trial essentially aimed to monitor patients con continuously and then to derive a tool based on uh, real-time monitoring outcomes and see if this tool can be plugged into clinical practice. So it sounds like you set out to debunk some of the urban myths almost of what uh, healthcare providers think about people at high risk versus not at high risk. Sure, sure. Whoa, okay, this is interesting. So um, tell us more about the Prodigy trial. First of all, what, what does Prodigy stand for? So Prodigy stands for the prediction of opioid-induced respiratory depression in patients monitored by capnography. And uh, like I said, the, the thought behind the trial was to, you know, monitor patients continuously and develop this risk prediction tool. We ended up calling this the Prodigy score. Uh, the way we did this trial was we, uh, we, did, uh, we did have 16 sites across three continents, so the U.S., Europe, and Asia. And at all of these sites, we recruited and enrolled patients, and patients would be essentially those who would be on the general care floor, whether it was a medical service or a surgical service, and they would be receiving parenteral opioids and would be hooked up to continuous capnography and oximetry monitoring. Now, what was really unique about the way we did the monitoring part was that we put all our patients on continuous monitoring using a portable monitoring system. We monitored heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, and entitled CO2, but we blinded and silenced our monitor. So neither the patient nor the bedside providers had any access to, to what the monitor was doing or showing. The bedside providers still did their traditional every four to six hour monitoring as would be done had we not been continuously monitoring. So what we uncovered in the end was real time, real data of patient, de patient deterioration events that we would not have picked up had we unblinded these monitors and allowed intervention. Right. I understand. Now I understand that because I, I had seen that and wondered why you guys did that. Sure. Okay. Sure. And then the, the ultimate, and then going further slightly, uh, the, the, so the one novelty was the way we did our monitoring. The second novelty was that, okay, we had tons of monitoring data, but we had to be sure that this was not artifactual and this was, you know, real uh, signals to harm. So we send all of our monitoring data to a four-member clinical event committee. These were four experts in perioperative respiratory depression, that, and they were not investigators on the trial, so they'd be as unbiased as, as possible. And they looked at all the waveform data and were able to separate with some degree of certainty that this was an artifact and this was a real respiratory depression episode. Now, we use predefined criteria to define a respiratory depression episode. And our criteria were a respiratory rate less than 5, oxygen saturation less than 85, and entitled CO2 less than 15 or more than 60. All of these for at least 3 minutes, any apneic episode for 30 seconds or more, or any predefined opioid-related adverse event. So if a patient had any of these, he or she would be marked off as having a respiratory depression episode. 
and that is what the clinical event committee would see on their real-time data. They would see the entitled CO2, oxygen saturation, respiratory rate, and heart rate, and say, okay, that's a real episode, and this one is an artifact, maybe because the nasal cannula picking up the entitled CO2 is not properly connected, or it's on the patient's forehead, or it's has fallen off or something has happened or the saturation probe is not properly connected or there's a noise there, right? So what we had in the end was high-fidelity data that we used to then associate with 46 potential predictors and build our uh, risk prediction model. Okay. I want to ask you a couple more questions about the study design. Um, How We'll talk about the outcomes in a bit, but how did that number that uh, you guys picked up in terms of defined respiratory depression events compare to the actual clinically uh, detected clinical uh, events in in the hospital by by the regular team? Sure, that's a great question. Now, um, the the Prodigy results showed us that uh, clinical events were few and far between. Right, so mm. I'll, I'll jump ahead uh, slightly. The results sure. themselves showed that out of 1,336 patients that we enrolled and in- included in our final analysis set, only 600, or should I not say only, 615 of them had a respiratory depression episodes as we defined and picked up on the monitor. So 46% of our patients had respiratory depression episodes as picked up by the monitor. However, Uh, I could count on my fingertips the clinical episodes that were picked up by a bedside provider. So a huge uh, divide or a huge divergence between what we're picking up and what is actually happening. And this, by the way, is not the first time this has happened. So at Cleveland Clinic, uh, we worked on data where we had put our non-cardiac surgical patients to continuous pulse oximetry monitoring and that was, again, blinded continuous pulse oximetry monitoring. Mm -hmm. And in a cohort of about 1,000 patients, we had seen that to the tune of 90% of all episodes of desaturation lasting for an hour or more was not being picked up by traditional monitoring. So that is how divergent continuous monitoring data is from traditional monitoring. So clearly there's a miss somewhere. Right. We'll talk about near misses. That's... That's a lot of near misses. Sure. Uh, a couple more questions about the um, uh, construction of the study itself. How, how many patients uh, did you enroll and how many actually wound up in the study? And uh, were there um, inclusion and exclusion criteria? Sure. So there, we started initially, we looked at uh, initial eligibility for nearly 2,000 patients uh, across three continents. And, uh, you know, our, our big exclusion criteria were patients who were who had, uh, you know, DNR orders on them, who were receiving opioids, um, you know, secondary to palliative care and, and things of that nature. Patients who did not qualify because they were not, you know, 18 years of age or, or older patients who were, uh, you know, who had cancer chemotherapy and had pain secondary to that and were receiving opioids. So those were our broad uh, exclusion criteria. Essentially, when opioids were being used as palliative medicine or used as an end-of-life care, then we would exclude those patients. Our inclusion criteria were really simple. Our inclusion criteria was adult inpatients on the general care floor who would have a minimum of one hour and a maximum of 48 hours of monitoring and who would receive parental opioids 
by parenteral opioids, I mean not only IV, I mean neuraxial as well. So that, uh, f so we really had very uh, fairly simple inclusion and exclusion criteria. Well, so it sounds like it actually re represented a very good cross-section sure. of the patients that everybody would see in their hospitals. Right. And it's not like you excluded patients who were at, who were at high risk. Right, Like right, patients right. with OSA or... Yep, no, we had BMI. a lot of significantly uh, decent fraction of OSA and high BMI and all of that good stuff. I mean, you know... Uh, I can talk talk you through the demographics a little bit. Interesting, uh, yes, is is the demographic pattern is very interesting because we did this across three continents, and one of the ideas there was to actually see, uh, you know, opioid, um, should I say, behavior uh, in terms of prescription practices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, and uh, some of the interesting demographics that came out was that. Um, well, I shouldn't say to be expected, but the American population was younger but much heavier compared to the European and Asian population. Higher BMIs, mm. higher neck circumference translates into a higher stop bang score and a risk for obstructive sleep apnea for the American population. And then the, the American population, we looked at opioid naivety. Mm -hmm. So people who would say, I've never received an opioid based on their uh, you know electronic medical record. Mm -hmm. So... 70% of Americans were opioid naive compared to nearly 100% of Asians who were um, opioid naive. So, so it clearly shows how different we are in terms of uh, what we're doing uh, with, with folks here in the U.S. Clearly, analgesia with opioids is really important here yeah. and probably not still uh, you know, mainstream in, in Asia. Our, our vision going forward would also be looking at uh, what happened to different subsets of patients, how they responded to uh, opioids. So did the Asian population react differently to receiving IV opioids in terms of uh, their perioperative uh, respiratory depression events, or did the American population respond differently? Because there's something to be said about your genetic makeup and how you respond to opioids as well. So that was the other uh, interesting part of doing the study across different uh, Populations. I look forward to seeing that. Will, will those subgroup analyses come out with the study, or is that in the future? That's in the future. Okay. That that sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, study. I'm definitely looking forward to that. But these these results already sound extremely dramatic. With you finding respiratory depression events in forty one percent, forty one point four percent to be exact of the patients that you studied. Um, I, I know that you're still analyzing the data. But can you give us uh, some examples of the high-risk populations that you found? Sure. Well, our um, primary um, outcome, in addition to the increased incidence of respiratory depression episodes we found, we built the Prodigy Risk Prediction Score. And uh, the risk prediction score, as we've analyzed it based on a multivariate risk prediction model, is essentially five variables to it. So we found that increasing age beyond the age of 60, with every decade adding to the risk, was the one that was most strongly associated with uh, uh, opioid-induced respiratory depression. Um, other uh, factors on that score were male sex, uh, the presence of opioid naivety, presence of sleep-disordered breathing, either diagnosed OSA or a high score on your stop-bank scoring pre, uh, risk assessment system, and the presence of uh, chronic heart failure. So these were just five variables, easy to use. Each of them would then get a weight based on their odds ratio, 
of being associated with a perioperative uh, opioid-induced respiratory depression event. And then the Prodigy score would go from a minimum of zero to a maximum of 39. And what we also estimated further was that we saw a significant intergroup separation. So what I mean by that is we divided our patients, the 615 who had an opioid-induced respiratory depression episode, we divided them into a low, intermediate, and high prodigy risk score. So low risk score was score less than 8, intermediate was 8 to 15, and a high prodigy risk was uh, greater than 15. And we found, for example, that someone who was at the highest risk who had a six times greater likelihood of getting a, a opioid-induced respiratory depression event compared to someone who was at the lowest risk on the Prodigy uh, risk score, at least within our cohort. And we found not only the lowest and highest risks were, were different, even the folks who were intermediate risk had a significantly high likelihood of getting an opioid-induced respiratory depression event. Wow, this sounds like really interesting data. So my next series of questions is about how this could potentially change our management of these patients and our treatment of them. Um, I'm sure you've given this plenty of thought. Right, right, right. Well, um, I'm, I'm excited by the fact that this is firstly a very um, easy to use, um, you know, bedside calculator. I wouldn't even call it a calculator. Anyone could do this, you know. And that's the the one thing I wanted to achieve with this risk prediction scores. Most of our um, some some of our uh, risk prediction scores in anesthesia and perioperative medicine are very complicated. They need you to go online, log into something, calculate something. Here is something where a bedside nurse, a you know healthcare provider, could pick up, see the patient's age, look at five points, three points in the history, and you have a score. Okay, so now what do you do? You have a have someone with a higher score. I would say that is the person who absolutely needs uh, continuous multi-parameter monitoring with a central monitoring platform that's going to separate noise from true events. And monitoring is not the only solution. Then you need to be proactive with your interventions. If you see, so it's all about pattern detection, as I call it. So if you see someone with obstructive sleep apnea is having repetitive uh, dips of hypoxemia and hypoventilation events and their and their frequency that sawtooth pattern is increasing you know that this is someone who's going towards that spiral and is going to have a respiratory arrest soon so you need to go in and intervene as soon as you identify that pattern it's almost like bedside eeg monitoring that we do for seizure detection so you identify patterns you you've got to identify patterns and intervene when the pattern looks uh, anything not normal and intervene before an event happens. We, as a community of uh, you know critical care providers, anesthesia providers, perioperative medicine providers, have been guilty of running our rapid response teams as a response to a catastrophic event. I want to run my rapid response teams as proactive interveners to avoid those events. It's not good enough to have an event, someone codes and you run into the room and try and resuscitate that person you have to prevent that code from happening because these are avoidable events. And you pointed out to us very early on in this interview that a lot of those patients who have these adverse events have an extremely poor, poor outcome, outcome of death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you'd behoove all of us to try to ward those off before, right. before they happen. Right. 
So, you know, unfortunately, I think we exist in a world that is very focused on the economics of it all. All of this increased level of monitoring, this increased level of response, uh, it sounds clinically necessary. How do we as a society pay for this technology? How, how, how do we rationalize it? How do we justify it? How do we find the money? Right, right, right. Well, in as much as that I'm not allowed to um, uh, dwell into the uh, secondary outcomes, I can tell you that previous literature has shown that patients who have opioid-induced respiratory depression events stay longer in hospitals, which costs a hospital a lot of money, about $2,000 a day to have someone as an inpatient. That patient goes to the ICU, it's probably $5,000 a day at the cost of mechanical ventilation and procedures and everything else. So you're already... Uh, if you're not picking up these patients, you're, you're adding a resource burden to, to, to the hospital that you're not seeing. So uh, I, my argument would be deploy continuous monitoring. You'll probably need some investment up front, but you'll see returns over the next five to ten years. And not only that, I honestly feel it's a patient safety issue. We owe this to our patients. And I will, I'll sound dramatic when I say that, but if it was my mom or dad who was recovering on the general care floor, and at least based on what I know today, I would absolutely not be uh, agreeable to leaving them on a Q4 hour vital sign check. I'm an ICU doctor. I like to see my vital signs come up continuously and be able to intervene before disaster happens. So I won't do it. I won't do it for my loved ones. I think we, we owe this to our patients to so give them a more safer uh, recovery environment. Yes, the cost analysis is obviously interesting, and uh, we are planning to do that for all of our prodigy data as well, and you should see all of that in the next year or so. Sounds great. This does make me think about um, our mutual specialties efforts in patient safety. The Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation has done a lot of really good work on patient safety, and I'm hoping that you and they are partnering on this initiative, working on technology. That'd be nice. Sure. Well, I, I can tell you that I have been in um, active talks with some of the leadership at, at the APSF, and they've been very responsive to this. They are themselves looking forward to the uh, Prodigy results being published and that they can take this to the higher leadership and say, hey, you know, these results clearly show that, you know, there needs to be better implementation of continuous monitoring. Although I have to tell you that uh, if I had a, I was envisioning the next step here in terms of the clinical research trial I would then design something where continuous monitoring would could be associated with uh, harder outcomes, such as myocardial injury, such as mortality, such as you know uh, rapid response events and things of that nature. So what we really need to establish ultimately is that lack of continuous monitoring adds to um, you know uh, harder outcomes for patients. Right, and and that. If we can do that, you know, with support of organizations like the APSF, that would truly move science forward in this area. I could see how it could potentially impact things like delirium or dementia. Absolutely. Um, Another topic that has been discussed in the critical care world recently is the utilization of artificial intelligence. And hearing you talk about all of this uh, big data and lots of data that is going to be streaming in from these patients if you manage to successfully advocate for continuous monitoring. Uh, it, it sounds like a really good 
way to use something like artificial intelligence. Um, ha- ha- have you thought about um, adding that component as an easy way to analyze the respiratory depression events? Yeah, it's great you bring that up. I've, I, ha- I am actively looking for uh, partners who with expertise in act- artificial intelligence. We will 100% need that as a second layer all of these streams of data that are going to come in. So, uh, I mean, you envision this. There is, um, you know, say, a 50-bedded um, surgical service, um, and there, there, there is 50 surgical patients who are hooked up to con- a continuous monitoring system. Each of them is generating many thousands of uh, bits of data, and um, you absolutely have to have an AI platform in the background that's able to, A, you know, clean the noise from the true events, and B, actually with pattern detection, able to establish that this patient is, you know, this patient is likely to deteriorate, and this kind of intervention will help this patient. Because um, I'm, I'm being very honest with you, it's not going to be easy to just convert our general care floors into continuously monitored floors. Uh, uh, we have to be smart about it. I mean, we just cannot put all our patients on continuous monitoring, have many thousands of alarms going off in all directions. Uh, my nursing colleagues will hate me for that extra work I'm giving them, but we have to have a um, smart platform. And usually that answer would obviously come from AI and mm-hmm. um, the ultimate vision there would be then to uh, integrate that with the electronic medical record. And so our rapid response teams are actually responding to real-time data mm-hmm. versus responding to data that's been recorded when someone's gone in the room and put a blood pressure cuff on the patient. Right. That sounds exciting. Yeah. Uh, I know that you're analyzing your data right now um, and that you don't have all of it, but I was wondering, were there any surprising outcomes that you saw when you started analyzing? I we all the, have our prejudices, you know, <laughs> but sometimes they're, they don't come to fruition, so I'm right, curious. Right, right. Well, you know, the, uh, the, the one surprising outcome was certainly the incidence of respiratory depression episodes that we uncovered. It was surprising and not surprising. So the, the literature that's available to us, you know, uh, for now saw an incidence of about 3 to 21% of uh, respiratory depression events on the general care floor. And we saw, you know, more than 40% um, incidence. Uh, <clears throat> there's, there's two reasons for it. First of all, all of that re- literature is based on mostly snapshots in time, vital sign monitoring. It's usually based on a singular monitoring system, like only the pulse oximeter or only the, the capnograph. We used multi-parameter monitoring, so you know, all four were going on together. And then we blinded our monitors. We used continuous real-time monitoring. So that truly shows why we picked up more respiratory depression episodes. And that, for me, was the biggest eye-opener. I didn't expect that almost every other patient on the general care floor is uh, having a respiratory depression episode uh, pretty frequently, that too. And that really, you know, you know, is the score itself a surprise for me? No, not really. Most of these predictors are totally justifiable. You know, I expect as people get older, their response in terms of opioid pharmacokinetics will change. And I expect an older individual to have a um, worse outcome, should I say. Um, 
opioid naivety was interesting because you know uh, it truly means that you know someone like me I've never got an opioid in my life if I you know if I tomorrow I'm 70 years old I'm pretty likely to have a, a poor event based on the score so that that's certainly interesting Des- deserves more investigation we also need to investigate more on opioid doses we're still cleaning up that data um, clearly, types of opioid used in the three continents were different, and opioid dosing patterns were different. So we're still working on converting everything to morphine equivalents and cleaning out the data from that perspective. And then everything else in the score itself is not surprising. So you know, if you're if you have sleep sleep disordered breathing, you're, we know that you're likely to have uh, you know hypoventilatory events. You know, if you have heart failure, you clearly are at in increased risk of respiratory depression per se because the, you know, the, the cardiac lung pump, so to speak, it suffers pretty quickly. If you're not oxygenating well, then the heart failure is clearly worse, so, and vice versa as well. So broadly, the score is uh, intuitive. I expected it uh, to be what it is. Um, what I'm really interested in is the uh, finer points that will come out once we take a deep dive into the data. And then finally, what I'm interested in is uh, what people do with the score when it's uh, out there. Are we going to change our culture or change our practices? So we've talked about some of the really, really big goals you have going forward, um, collaborations, AI um, what are some of the immediate steps you are planning on taking in terms of the next studies and the next steps? Sure. Well, uh, right now the the effort is to you know uh, obviously focused on our uh, on the trial itself and make certain that you know we present the trial to the world and you know that everyone can know our results and hopefully uh, bring it to their clinical practice. The most immediate next step would be to look at opioid delivery patterns, like I just said, you know, how were opioids administered, how frequently were they administered, uh, what was the timing of events from after PACU discharge, because that's also something very interesting, how long should we keep these patients in the PACU. I can tell you even that across continents is very different. In Europe, for example, they tend to hold patients in PACU for 24 hours if they have to, if they feel a patient's higher risk. In the Americas, we know that we tend, we have a general tendency to either send the patient to the floor or send the patient to the ICU. There's nothing quite in between. We don't like holding patients in our PACU. So is that different? Um, so is the European model better because they're keeping all eyes on the patient for longer, or can we do better? So we're also looking at, you know, like I said, uh, when these events happen after PACU discharge. We had a mix of hospitals in our uh, Prodigy trial, both academic um, and private practice community hospitals. So we'll also be going back and looking at where these events were happening, what is the effect of presence of trainees in the hospital, which is obviously in academic centers, and does that really make a difference? So a lot of uh, interesting finer points coming out. Um, Pattern detection is obviously high on the cards, and then the economic analyses, that is... uh, also going to be extremely, extremely important, and we're currently working on the economic analyses as well. Sounds like good things to do. Right. I'm right. really looking forward to seeing what your results are, mm-hmm. and it's an impressive amount of work that you've already done, and I, I think all of us need to applaud you and be advocates for uh, being more aware of the potential um, morbidity that could befall these patients. 
And like you said, I think we in the ICU uh, up until now have been very good at picking up the pieces. But I think your point is why pick up the pieces when you can head them off? Right, right, right. Have it not happen in the first place. Absolutely. And I can, you know, obviously I can go on and on about this, but I I call this the 2 a.m. phenomenon. So, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I would do my overnight call as an attending or even as a trainee in the surgical ICU at about 2 o'clock at night, almost every other night, I would get this rapid response call from the floor and, you know, some surgical resident is calling me saying, well, my patient's desaturating or hypoventilating. I don't know why. I don't know what's going on. And I just called a rapid response on him or her. Can you put the patient in the ICU? And, you know, here's this patient, typical, you know, 60 to 70-year-old male or female, about two to three days out of surgery, big incision, getting a lot of opioids because of pain, comes into the ICU. There's an ICU bed that we've consumed. There's time and energy that I put residents and fellows to a task saying, you know, fix this patient, tell me what's going on. And there's, you know, nursing resources that I've consumed. And all we would end up doing would be put some oxygen on the patient, probably put the patient on some BiPAP, realize that uh, maybe what was happening was that he's getting too much narcotic or maybe, you know, narcotic and sedative uh, mixed in and he was hypoventilating. All he needed was just some proactive intervention and continuous monitoring. By the time it was 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, the patient was mostly all fixed. No real true surgical problem mm-hmm. it was just a problem that could have been averted in the first place had we had continuous monitoring and a risk prediction system on the floor right right so we ended up i mean happens all the time wasted all of these resources time and energy and also given the family a lot of grief you think of yes. all those people it was like my dad and i got a call in the middle of the night well they're taking him to the icu how difficult that becomes if that happens again and again and again and again yeah so this is something it's like common sense. You could just do it on the floor. You keep things simple. But make it so that people um, are empowered to do it. Right. And to have some data behind it. Sure. So Absolutely. Yeah. It yeah. sounds good. Well, this concludes uh, today's uh, talk about this topic. This is yet another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast team, I thank Dr. Kana for joining us. And I'm Ludwig Lin. This podcast is supported by an unrestricted educational grant provided by Medtronic. Ludwig Lin, MD, is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.